this Sunday is essentially the last Sunday before we go into Advent. And the, um, in the Anglican church calendar, it's Christ the King. And I thought it would be a good idea to pan out and see who is this Jesus. So we ask the question that's often asked on Alpha courses, who is Jesus? And we look at it in that context. But I want to take initially a look at the cosmic Christ, the pre-existent Christ. I'm always also very um, humbled and cautious when I do this because I recognize the finite limitation of who I am as I am about to speak in relation to the second person of the Godhead. I think if anyone claims to understand the Trinity, if anyone claims to understand what just happens, in a, which we're going to celebrate, happens in the manger, then I think they're wrong. It is too big, and I am going to try to methodically go through it a little bit and to create a dichotomy between which we often merge as we're thinking about Jesus. We mix up sometimes, and I'm as guilty as anyone else of this, and I'm sure it will happen during the course of the sermon. We mix up what he has done for us versus who he is in and of himself. So when we speak about Jesus a lot of times, we say he's our savior, absolutely. But is that who he is? Before he became savior, what was he? He could never have become savior if he was not who he is. So those kinds of questions arise or should arise in our minds because as Christians, we pin our hope on Christ. And if we see the magnitude of who Christ is, there is nothing in the universe better than him to pin our hope on. So the fact that we are not talking nonsense is because of who he is. If we bring him down to our level too much, then why do we pin our hopes in him? However, as we go on during this morning, we also have to see that he did come down to our level. So initially, we're going to look at the obvious question, who is Jesus? Then we'll try and do an arc through scripture to bring it into land at Christmas time, and then our identity in Jesus. Because as soon as we see who Jesus is, if we are in Christ Jesus, we begin to identify who we are. Because a lot of times when someone asks us who we are, again, we start giving what job we do as the answer. We, we start identifying ourselves by other things as opposed to who we are. So the question I'm going to spend most of time this morning on is who Jesus is, and then to bring it into land who we are, or more, to put it a different way, who he thinks we are. 
scripturally. So if you would, I'm going to use as the base text, the, um, the text in Colossians, but we've had um, three texts read. So Colossians sets out who Jesus is quite concisely there. So Paul picks it up and tries to essentially, as he's talking against early forms of uh, a heresy called Gnosticism, he um, wants to sort of drum down who Jesus is, and he puts a very concise description. The author of Hebrews does exactly the same thing at the outset of Hebrews, and then John, in his letter, which is very appropriate as we begin to come into Christmas season, deals with the incarnation, but not as a way in a manger, but very much as this God that he happens to have had lunch with, touched, seen, etc., etc. So that's, um, that's what the three passages that I've chosen to um, have read. But I want to begin as a, in a very Christmassy theme. Emmanuel, God with us. So what is that? St. Paul picks it up in, in the start of his gospel in chapter 1, verse 23, picks up the passage from Isaiah 7.14 and applies it to Jesus and says that this is God with us. What just happened there? Before all time, God the Father begets his Son. Within time and space, Mary begets a baby. At the pre-existent state, God the Father unilaterally begets the Son. There is no mother. Within time and space, Mary has Jesus, but there is no human father. So what we've got is a continuity of personhood. That which was at the outset is the one that is now incarnate. We do not have a fresh creation at Christmas. It is the pre-existent God, the Son of God, who has become incarnate through Mary. There's a, there's a complete continuity of personhood. If you, it isn't a new person who adopts deity into himself. It is God himself that adopts humanity through Mary. So that is why the, um, the Apostle John can pick, pick this up in, in his gospel, saying, in the beginning was the Word, the Word was with God, and the Word was God. And then in, um, in his gospel at chapter 1, verse 18, he can say, no one has ever seen God. God, the only Son, has revealed God to us. So there's a lot of deity language going on, while, again, there's the humanity aspect. He is in front of us. And then John stresses this in his letter. So coming into Colossians um, chapter 1, verse 15, Paul starts off by saying that the Son is the image of the invisible God. In, um, in the Hebrews text, we see that the Son is the radiance of God's glory, the express image of his person. Essentially, the, um, 
the language that Hebrews is using is to say that sort of if someone had a, a rubber stamp in their hands, you stamp it, it's the express image. So that which God is gets stamped materially in Christ. And so when Paul is saying the Son is the image of the invisible God, he is saying, you want to see God? Look at the Son. And Jesus himself picks this up in, um, as John records it, by when his apostles turn to him and say, show us the Father, he almost sort of, I can just visualize the scene, what are you asking? Look at me, you've seen the Father. Before Abraham was born, I am. And um, all, those, all those things should begin to indicate to us that if we want to see who God is, we, want, we should look at Christ. So do you want to understand, and then going off on my job description side of things, if you want to understand how God operates, look at Christ. So the express image of the invisible God is Christ. So if we pick up any of the Gospels and, and we look at them, we see the character of God. But let's just stop for a second and say, but what is this person? Who is this person? This person, Christ, is the one who created the universe. Because Paul then goes on to say that he is the firstborn over all creation, for in him all things were created, things in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or powers or rulers or authorities. All things have been created through him and for him. Now, he cannot just be a human being. He cannot just be a little baby in a manger. He's the creator God. And we see this image um, concept is very interesting as regards us. And as I said, I'll try and come and land a little bit on us. Let's just go on a little tangent regarding us. At the outset of creation, when God did everything in, in the number of days and then he came to human beings, he said that he's going to create human beings in his image. There is a reason that in the Mosaic law, it is stated that we should not make images to worship. Part of that reason is that whilst we are in the image of God, we are the images of God in his creation. So the um, uh, kings of the time, if they were ruling an empire from one particular place, would have carved images of themselves put everywhere else in the empire so that people would know who their king is. And what Christ in creation is doing, as Paul says, Christ created that, is putting images of himself, humanity, into his creation. So we are creatures, so that under no circumstances must I be misunderstood as equating us with God in any shape or form. We are the image of God. We are the, great, we are the images of God. But he has placed us, and as he gave the command, to multiply and subdue his creation. So he creates this image in the Garden of Eden of the two individuals, sending them out to multiply and put images throughout creation. Now, the story then is of the fall. So when we look at human beings now, we do not see 
the image of God perfectly. We see a marred, disfigured image of God. So when Christ comes into creation, he is in and of himself the Son of God, in and of himself therefore God, but at the same time the exemplar of what human beings ought to be. So he is the perfect image in human form of what was created pre-fall in Eden. In Eden, humanity was created in the image of God with potentiality to develop into Christ. So a duty was given to human beings when they were put in Eden. They were to go out of there and subdue, multiply. That didn't quite work out. Christ restores that. So when we look at Christ and see Christ's image, he is the exemplar that we have to adopt in order to us, in turn, be Christ to the world. So going back to the text in Colossians, there's also the, um, uh, the point where Paul says, the firstborn over all creation, as the NIV puts it, or the firstborn of creation as other translations put it. Sometimes people get uneasy if they see a phrase like the firstborn of creation. They think something's gone wrong and, and it gets sanitized by um, over all creation being put in. But what both are trying to get at is inheritance. Just like British aristocracy, the firstborn son gets the whole estate and nobody else does. That is that kind of was the inheritance law at the point in time when Paul is writing. So when Paul actually, in my opinion, says the firstborn of creation, it's because it, he then follows it up, saying he's supreme over it all. So he inherits the entirety of creation. It should not be misunderstood as he's part of creation. He's the firstborn of creation. Everything belongs to him. So the author of creation is also, in, having become human, the inheritor of all creation. And what does he do with that? Once he becomes all in all, we see in Ephesians, he puts it to the Father. And what does the Father do? Hands it back to him, and new creation kicks in. So it's um, that, that absolute supremacy of Christ from being God at the outset and being Lord over all creation post um, descent into the world as incarnate God and then uh, ascension back is essentially what Paul is trying to put into this text when, when he looks at it. He then says that, therefore, he's before all things, and in him all things hold together. I don't think I can develop that point better than Paul just did. Um, as regards us, we've looked at it um, on a number of occasions previously, that we are the body of Christ. So then, having identified who he is, who is he right now to the world? It's us to the world. So someone out there in Mosey needs to see Christ. He is the head of his body, the church. So we go out as Christ, and in, 
in sort of an extrapolating way, we are Christ to the world. So when they look, when we want to see who the Father is, we can look at the Son because he's the exact representation of God the Father. When the world needs to see who Christ is, they need to look at us because collectively as a church, we have to be the exact representation of Christ to the world. Sort of all, if you look at the pan of scripture, um, it all sort of homes in with the birth of Christ in the New Testament. And then it funnels out as to what that means individually and collectively, but also the cosmic Christ from Genesis to Revelation as Lord over all. So we then see this Lordship of Christ being expanded on in, in the text in Colossians and it, as picked up in, um, in Hebrews that God was pleased to have all his fullness dwell in him. Paul normally, when he uses the word God, is referring to the Father. When he uses the word Lord, is referring to the Son. Um, that's kind of off the back of the Septuagint. And, and so, and right at the end of this short text, he then goes to what Jesus has done in reconciling the world to himself. So, let's, a number of questions arise when... Um, when we think about all this. Firstly, the question about the Trinity arises. And we will never find an easy text in the Bible to look at to say, here it is, there's a description of the Trinity. But the usage of, uh, the, the interchangeability and the usage of words by St. Paul and then John makes us begin to think that there are more than one persons, but they are all being worshipped as God. Now, Judaism is singularly monotheistic. So under no circumstances are there three gods. It is one God. But we then have to see how is this one God working out. If we, um, if we accidentally make them three doesn't quite work in a monotheistic one God context. The Lord your God is one. But nor does it work if we make the Father identical to the Son, identical to the Holy Spirit. Because the letters of Paul, the Gospels, will not operate, will not permit that. Salvation will not permit that. What Christ said and did will not permit that. So we have to, again, pan out to the cosmic Christ, but pan out even further and again, I'm speaking very humbly here. I will give the consensus understanding and my understanding, but under no circumstances would I claim to understand the Godhead fully. But the, um, the Western Church, that's Catholicism and onwards to Protestantism, and the Eastern Church have similar but ever so slightly different explanations of the Trinity. So in the Western Church, we see um, God the Father begets a son, and then the Father loves the son. The son loves the Father, and that love for each other brings about a, a procession of the Holy Spirit 
And so you have three persons operating. So you have the outpouring of love from the Father to his Son, colliding with the outpouring of love from the Father back to the Son, and the Holy Spirit, which is the powerful essence of love, is what meets in the middle, and then we now see operating. Powerful imagery for the Trinity from the Western Church. In the Eastern Church, the source of the Trinity is the Father, that one who is in and of himself is God, and that which he begets, the Son, is God, and that which comes out of him, his power, him being the source, that which proceeds out of him is God, and because you have one essence as a source, both that which he has begotten and that which has proceeded out of him are God. And that is why there is one God, because there is one essence of God. So, the, um, for want of a better way of putting it, and I mean this, um, the species is God, because the essence is God. And so there's the personhood of the Father, the personhood of the Son, and the personhood of the Holy Spirit with one essence of God. So we see, when we look at Christ, therefore, that before all time, with the Father and the Holy Spirit, he is God. And before anything came into, be, into being, he was there. Now, we have to then begin to make sense of what's happening at what we just looked at and what we'll go a little bit deeper in through the text of 1 John at the Incarnation. This essence of God, this deity, has conceded to become human. And he has appropriated into the deity humanity. And so John can come in and say, that which was from the beginning, in other words, the creator who made all this stuff, which we have heard, which we have seen with our eyes, which we have looked at, and our hands have touched, this we proclaim concerning the word of life. So he is essentially, just like Paul was in Colossians, doing exactly the same thing in 1 John, because he was dealing with an embryonic form of Gnosticism at the time, which was a heresy that would sort of spiritualize Christ a little bit, um, to say, oh no, the incarnation is vital. I've seen him, I've touched him, I've sat in front of him, he's there. So, and without, and now I will go to the job description, so to speak, without the incarnation there is no salvation. Because whilst God is God, God has to self-identify himself with us in order to bring us back into union with God. So the mediation that Christ has done to reconcile humanity to God can only be done because he is incarnate. And that is what we are coming to celebrate at Christmas. It can get lost in sort of pictures of little mangers or Father Christmas, but the incarnation, we have to go past the myth. Like we, we, we even have pictures of it. We, we assume, for example, that there were three wise men. The Bible never says that. There were three gifts, 
never says how many wise men. So it's, we have to go past it and see what, what is Matthew getting at when he says, Emmanuel, God with us. This is God with us. And when, when the apostles understand what's going on, that is what has gone out and become who we are. And there's two things that Christ has done. Some things that Christ has done that solely he could do. Who is he? He is the God-man. What can he do? He can die on the cross to take away the sins of the world, to destroy death, and to reunite humanity with the Father. But there's another thing he can do. As the human side of him, the human image-bearer of God, he can be our exemplar as to what we have to be in order to be the image-bearers of God. So, salvation, entirely the work of Christ. We put our faith in Christ. He brings us into his body. We can face the Father. The not guilty decree goes out. Moving on, what does it mean to be us? It means that we have to be like Christ. You want to see what makes Christ tick? Have a read of any one of the Gospels. What makes him happy? What makes him rail against things? I mean, he did not like the fact that Lazarus had died. He just didn't like it. What annoys him should annoy us. What we see are his passions and his love should be what we reflect. So the character of the earthly Christ that we see is the character of God. So we move on from the pre-existent Christ into the Christ human showing us how we should be. But then the arc of scripture then goes again to the now lamb that was slain sitting on the throne as was the pre-existent. So the ark then suddenly elevates him. And we see the throne of God, but who's sitting on it? A lamb who was slain. So that again is who Christ is. The God who came, restored, returned, and loves. And how does he love? He loves directly, and he, likes, he loves the world indirectly through us. And when we say who is Jesus, when we pray to this Jesus, we must understand his majesty. We go out absolutely confident because of who he is. If he was not who he is, we are wasting our time. But he is the son of God. But he's also the son of man. And I want to touch on this point as well before I close. If, if you look at um, the arrest scene of Jesus, the high priest tore his clothes not when a mention of Son of God was taking place, but when a mention of Son of Man happened. And that's when they decided to crucify and tore their clothes. Now, that allusion to Son of Man is from the book of Daniel, where we see the Ancient of Days the father, sitting on his throne, and one like a son of man appears, 
and the key next phrase being in the clouds. Now, the imagery in, alter, in, in that period at which it was written is if something arrived in the clouds, it meant that it was a deity. So when Daniel says that he's seen a son of man arriving in the clouds, and all authority is then given to him by the Ancient of Days, there's a forward-looking statement regarding Christ. And that wasn't missed in the New Testament. When Jesus said, son of man, and essentially made an allusion to, the altar, to Daniel, that's when he got arrested. Well, he was already arrested, that's when he went on to crucifixion, is what I mean. So, we can see that Christ has take, is the Son of God, takes on the name Son of Man for himself, unites the two together, and that makes him the person that he now is. Because once and for all, for all he has the pre-existent, dematerialized Christ, is now the existent, materialized Christ that has taken on humanity and elevated it to deity, into the deity. So that is the absolute majesty of our faith. That is the person through whom we go to the Father and in whom we can rest and by whom we receive the Holy Spirit. Be confident in him as you go out. Whatever life throws at you. And he sends, us out, he sends out his, he promised to send his Holy Spirit. So just as he said in John's Gospel that he doesn't do anything except that which the Father tells him to do, in turn he tells us that the Holy Spirit will not do anything other than that which he tells the Holy Spirit to do. Now this isn't a hierarchy, it's, um, it's tough to do the language here. It's essentially saying we mirror each other. It's, it's the Hebrews kind of thing. One's the express of the other. So we should be confident in the Lord Jesus, who has sent his Holy Spirit to us. Because, think about it, once the Holy Spirit has lived in anyone, it's the eternal God who has lived in that person. Though that person might die, God is in some senses forever changed by having inhabited that person. So at the end of time, as Revelation puts it, at the final trumpet, the Holy Spirit who has resided in those people who were his people cannot forget those people. So at the final trumpet sound, the resurrection that it talks about, is the Holy Spirit who has forever been influenced by the fact that he resided in you and you and you and you, resurrects his creation unto new glory. So that is the ark that we see in Jesus and that is what he bestows on us as his image bearers. And that is why when everything funnels in at Christmas to Christ and then funnels out from there until his second coming is why we have confidence in him because of who he is. Who is he? I am. He is the Lord. Thank you.